Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. In this podcast, what we're going to do is we're going to play a workshop that I taught for my favorite organization, the American Solar Energy Society. And this workshop was in Boulder, Colorado on August 6, 2021. The title of this workshop, Solar PV Intensive Workshop. And what I do is I fit about 40 hours worth of material into about an hour and a half. And every year I teach a workshop like this for ASIS. I also do a National Electrical Code workshop for them too. It's a lot of fun because like I said, ASIS is my favorite organization. Well, Grid Alternatives is too. And I'm going to read the description of the workshop. The Solar PV Intensive Workshop taught by Sean White is NAPSEP registered, will count for NAPSEP associate exam credits, and will be fast-paced and cover a lot of information. Students are recommended to plan on being alert, taking good notes, read the instructor's books, and study the material intensively for the week following the course. For maximum learning, students can read the instructor's book, Solar Photovoltaic Basics, 2nd Edition, before the course. You can buy it here. Also, for people that were at the course, the live course would get a $200 discount for Sean's NAPSEP with PV Associate Heat Spring Boot Camp. And that's how people can qualify to take the NAPSEP Associate Exam. Topics covered include energy storage systems, that's also abbreviated ESS, and PV markets. So I do something like this for ASIS every year. I also do a National Electrical Code workshop for them. And I just love ASIS. They're a lot of fun, good people. I recommend that you go to the 51st Annual National Solar Conference that's going to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's the ASIS, American Solar Energy Society Conference, also known as Solar 2022. That's going to be June 21st to 24th, 2022 at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. That's right, we're going to be breaking bad. And so remember, this was a live workshop and there were slides and I know you can't see the slides on this podcast. So there might be some parts that you might just have to use your creative imagination or we're going to post this on YouTube. And if you wanted to find out how to get there to that YouTube link, you can go to solar, S-E-A-N, that's solarshawn.com. Okay, on with the workshop. Welcome to the workshop. It's the PV Intensive Workshop. And the big thing about this, like even if you missed a couple of things, the best deal about this class is we give you credit to take my heat spring class, which is qualifies people for the NAPSEP associate exam. Um, and it covers all this stuff in much more detail. It's, I think it's pretty much about the full price of this class is like a gift certificate towards the other class that's where I spend a lot of time. I spend eight hours for every 15 minutes of video. The heat spring platform works pretty well and you can't catch COVID with when you're online. So I'm going to only give COVID to Theo, who's the, you know, the guy that's here in person and the sound guy. I have a lot of slides here too. I took a whole bunch out, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut through and skip over slides. I just, I, even if we had three hours, I'd still have to skip over slides. And then another thing is make sure that I get everybody's contact information. And so one way that you can do that, just the easiest one I could say really quick is solarsean.com. At the bottom, there's my email address. You can send me an email that you were in this class, any kind of questions. And we're going to give certificates of completion that qualify for NABCEP credit. And also when you send me an email, I will send you a link so you can have this whole presentation. So you get all this information. So you can see here too, some of my credentials. This is a book that goes with a lot of the material that we're doing, Solar Photovoltaic Basics. I have a couple of them here too. 
here's some other books that I've written. And then if you include second editions, I've written eight books and they're pretty much on PV. We're doing another class. It's two hours later on today. And that one is going to be PV in the National Electrical Code. So that's going to go along with that other book. And my COVID project was energy storage. So I did a lot of energy storage stuff and wrote this other book, Energy Storage Basics with a good friend of mine. Solar, it's taken off. Just trying to get people enthused about solar here a little bit. If we look the first quarter of 21, 99.7, just round off to 100%. That's 100% of new capacity that we installed here in the United States is solar and wind. And so that's incredible. That's like some crazy things going on there. hundred <laughs> percent. You can't get much better than that. You can see that when they see solar and they think of solar, they think of solar on their roof of their house, but most solar that we could see, and this is perfect to do the calculation with because out of hundred gigawatts, 63.7 or 63.7%, you do that calculation real easy is utility scale. And so that's the big stuff that you don't usually see because it's off somewhere else. And it was kind of funny. I was just in Indiana for Monday through Thursday doing a class for the Carpenters Union. And one thing that was kind of interesting about that is they're getting a lot of blowback because there's these people that are going around in that area of the United States saying how bad solar is for the environment. <laughs> I just think that's almost kind of like so backwards that it's almost comical. So here's the chart, first quarter. 21, that it's all solar and wind and nothing else. We can see that we've reached peak coal and peak everything else. And now I don't know if we can hit peak solar, <laughs> how that would happen. Um, this is something that's really interesting. And I know that we have somebody here from Texas right now, at least one person, and that California has always been the top of this chart. California has always been half the solar of the whole country. And so now we've got Q1 all of a sudden is um, Texas beat California. It's hard to believe. California has never been beat ever for anything on this chart. So maybe it has to do with the grid freezing. I don't know, but we'll see how that keeps up. That's kind of interesting. Price for solar is very important statistic. That's what drives this whole industry. It's economics. I like to try to sell solar as an economic thing. I know it's a green thing too, but we already have the green people sold. Let's sell all the people that aren't green and everybody else too on solar just because it saves them money and it prevents uh, wars and all the terrible things that we have to do around the world to keep fossil fuels going. Somewhere around $3 a watt's residential and utility scale is getting down quite a bit below a dollar a watt. That's just incredible. If you just look at 1977, just the solar cells themselves were $77 a watt. So we've got a huge decrease in the price. Here's a, just a little table about the NEC. That's what we're going to talk about later coming up at National Electrical Code. And so those are the rules for solar. And most of the country is on the 2017 National Electrical Code right now. Just fun facts about the sun, because this is ASIS, and ASIS is kind of cool. My favorite organization, it's been around the longest, and they are into the sun. Did you know it takes 500 seconds for light to get here from the sun? And so we're doing nuclear power. And then also, just for one rotation around the galaxy, it takes 250 million years. And so humans kind of only been around for maybe a million years, depending on what you call a human. That's a long time. You know? It's like the last time we were here, there's... I guess dinosaurs, and now we're burning dinosaurs, <laughs> or at least oh, the plants when the dinosaurs were here. Um, solar energy is light, power from light, photovoltaic, light voltage. We work mostly on the visible part of the, the spectrum, but also 
it's electromagnetic radiation or light can be radio waves, can be x-rays and everything in between. So just a little bit about that. Solar phenomena. And this is a normal day. This is called a good day. It's great for solar. And that's called a solar spill is also called a good day <laughs> as to an oil spill called a bad day. So we had a total eclipse. You can ever get into a total eclipse and see it go, go black and see the sun get it going behind the moon and the moon has to be on its close part of its pattern for it to fully block the sun. So not every total eclipse. A total eclipse we've got. And so there's the annular eclipse. The one on the left isn't that cool compared to the total eclipse. So the annular, the moon's far away, doesn't block the whole sun. So April 8th, 2024, put on your calendars and get there, get in that path. And if you get almost to that path, like 99% of the way there, you're a loser. <laughs> no, just kidding. But um, you got to get right in the path is what I'm trying to say. And it's the best thing that you can ever see. It's sort of like the Mecca for solar people get into that path. So like I said, solar system that uh, used to be the biggest in the United States, 14 megawatts. Now we have systems in the United States are like 500 megawatts. And that is Nellis Air Force Base. But we're just saying photo, that's light voltage. It's kind of magic. We use a crystal, crystal magic. We turn light into voltage, light into electricity. This is just solar thermal. And solar thermal is something that is not photovoltaic. And it's just not cost effective when you compare it to PV. And it also, you know, it's got moving parts and steam, just like nuclear and coal and just lots of repair bills and things like that. But it's kind of neat. It's really neat. You get thousands of mirrors and you shine them onto this power tower and you end up making steam. Another thing that we're hearing a lot about in the news a lot is these solar roof tiles and solar roof tiles have been in the news. And for long periods of time, I've got a good friend of mine that's been installing solar roof tiles for decades. So they've been around, they cost more. It's a lot of hype. So just in this industry, be a little aware of the hype cycle. I imagine that most people that call about buying solar roof tiles, then they find out how much it costs. They end up buying the other stuff, you know, the stuff that's just more cost effective. Here's a slate roof though. If you compare a solar roof tile to a slate roof, maybe your solar roof tile is a good deal compared to a slate roof, but also a slate roof can cost as much as your whole house, depending on where you live, <laughs> $100,000 roof. Let's just go over here and take a peek at what we have. And this is called series and parallel wiring that we have with a PV system. I'm going to just use my mouse for a pointer here because I think that works best for the people online. So we connect these solar modules together in series, positive to negative, and that increases your voltage. So positive to negative increases voltage. And so we've got 40 volts times four, that's 160 volts. So I'll tell you what that's called. People call it a string when you put PV modules together in series. But another name for a string, the official name in the National Electrical Code is a PV source circuit. So a PV source circuit is a string. Anytime you connect batteries or solar battery cells or solar cells together in series like this, you increase voltage. When you connect solar cells into series like this, you do not increase current at all. So you put one you, get, you measure the current of one solar cell, you measure the current of a thousand solar cells, which is not too uncommon to have that kinds of, those kinds of numbers in series. You're gonna get the exact same amount of current. In fact, you might even get a little bit less because it's a lot of times it's the weakest link that limits the flow, like a plumber that used different sizes of pipes. But you wanna get all your solar cells that are in series of the same amount of current. And, and so that's a string. String of PV. If you're putting PV on your rooftop of your house, 
You might be putting electronics behind the modules because there's these safety rules that we call rapid shutdown. So it protects firefighters and somebody pushes a button and it turns everything off at the individual module level. And then you don't have strings up there typically. You would have different types of circuits. You might have a, a, you know microinverter circuits. You might have DC to DC converter source circuits, but you don't have PV source circuits. Things are a little bit different. So and anyway, so if you have a large... PV system, like in a field, like most of the solar, we were just showing you that two thirds of the PV in the United States is utility scale. And a lot of that utility scale solar is hooked up to huge inverters, like megawatt inverters, million watts, thousands of PV modules. And what we're going to see a lot of times with these big inverters is we're not going to have a string inverter where you take your PV source circuits and bring it right to the inverter. What you're going to have is a central inverter where you combine your PV source circuits together, your strings, at a combiner box, a DC combiner. And so you would take all your negatives and go to one spot, all your positives go to another spot. You put fuses on one of these polarities, um, typically the positive, and then your current coming out of here is going to increase by ever, however many strings you have. And so in this diagram, we've got three strings combining together in this, this combiner box, and that's going to give us three times the current. So if we had five amps per solar cell, five amps, that's the same as five amps for PV source circuit, because all the solar cells are in series, then we're going to have 15 amps, five times three on the PV output circuit coming out of that combiner box. And so that means more current, bigger wires. And voltage times current is power. And power is what we want to get. Power times time is energy. We'll say that a few times today. Another thing, if you know about like Nikolai Tesla and why he became famous, is he figured out how to switch things. He figured out how to take low voltage, high current, and change that to high voltage, low current, because current is what takes up space on a wire when you're sending electrons through a wire. So you take your lower voltage, you boost that up there with a transformer, and then you get way more efficiency. And now we even have the technology to convert DC to DC. And we have these things called DC to DC converters and the electronics and all that. But back in the day, Thomas Edison wishes he had that and maybe he would have beat Tesla. And it's kind of interesting is Thomas Edison's getting his day too, because there is something on transmission lines, big wires, where they call it skin effect. And all the electrons like to travel with alternating current. They like to travel on the outside of the wire. That's sometimes why you see like these high voltage lines. Instead of just three, you'll see like nine or six or some multiple of three. Because with parallel wires, you get more bang for your buck that way. High voltage DC is becoming a big thing these days for transmitting renewable energy over long distances. And we're seeing especially high voltage DC in places like China and Europe. But we're going to see that all over the place. One th interesting thing, too, is that there's talk of putting a big high voltage DC, like megavolt. And think of that, too, megavolt. You could take one megavolt, that's a million volts, with one amp, and that's a whole megawatt. Just with one amp, you could put whole megawatt inverter on, like, the same kind of size wire that you charge your phone with, <laughs> just if it was just one amp. But if you had a, a megavolt too, it's going to be very sparky. So you have to keep those wires very far apart. High voltage DC, there's talk of putting lines. You know, it's on theory right now. You got to get all the countries to agree on things that never happens. But you could take a line and you can put it from Argentina up through North America, the Bering Straits over to Russia, and then swing on over through Europe and head down there towards South Africa, where my half-brother is. And we could share all of our electrons. It's always going to be windy. It's always going to be daylight. 
and there's always going to be energy on that line. Hopefully we'll see something like that, but we can't even figure out how to send power from California to Texas and back and forth. So let alone all the way from Argentina to South Africa, let's change all that stuff. This right here is called an IV curve. And I've got a few of these in this presentation. And what an IV is, I is the symbol that we use for current and V is the symbol that we use for voltage and current times voltage is power. A PV module, when it's turned off, you've got open circuit voltage right there. That's like the most voltage you can get. It's not like regular electricity where you have constant voltage and you take however much current you want. As you start taking more and more current out of this PV module, what happens is the voltage goes down, but the current goes up. And there's a sweet spot right in between that's got the perfect voltage and current, and that's called your maximum power voltage and your maximum power current. It's voltage at maximum power, current at maximum power. And that's where you wanna operate. And so our things that we hook our PV modules to, usually, ideally, almost all the time these days, because it's getting cheaper, they do maximum power point tracking. And so they keep it right there, it's right at that spot where you're gonna have your maximum power voltage and your maximum power current. And then if I multiply these two things together, voltage at maximum power times current at maximum power, I'm gonna get the power of the PV module. You know, power is measured in watts. Um, short circuit current is if you just like cross positive and negative. And short circuit current is something that you never wanna do. You know, it's like if something went wrong. But what's really weird about PV is if you had short circuit current of a battery, you're talking about like so much current, the battery explodes. Short circuit current of your plug socket in the wall, it trips a breaker. It's just all this current rushes in from the utility. But with a PV module, the short circuit current is only approximately 7% more than maximum power current. So it's kind of weird. And we size our wires based on 125% of short circuit current. And that gives us our current for doing wire sizing. And we throw other factors at it too. It's not that easy. There's another 1.25 that we use for everything called continuous current, but that we're getting advanced there. And we could spend all day on that, but we have a lot of material to cover right now. PV now is the cheapest electricity in the world. Pretty soon we're going to have terawatt day. I just made that up. There's going to be a terawatt of PV in the world in the next year or two. And the way that PV doubles though, is then we're going to double that in a couple of years after that. And a terawatt, that's a trillion watts of PV. So just keep an eye out that we're going to start seeing news articles like we've reached a terawatt. These are just some graphs about that. This is just showing you how in, the, in 10 years, the price of solar went way down. See, boom, it's incredible. So it just like it, that really changes things. So if we're talking up here when PV was that expensive, then all those naysayers, they ha might've had something, you know, or say like, well, solar is expensive. It's too, and now we look down here, it's like, whoa, it's like people are selling solar in some places for less than two cents a kilowatt hour in the desert and stuff like that. It's pretty darn cheap. The biggest benefit in the United States for solar, well, unless you're in a place like New Jersey with a really good feed-in tariff, is we've got this tax credit and it's the investment tax credit. And we're at 26% uh, until the end of 2022. And one thing about this tax credit though, is they keep renewing it. If they didn't, when it jumps from 22% to 10 or zero, that would be a really bad day. <laughs> and I just don't think anybody wants to have an industry where all of a sudden you just took that kind of money off the books but that's the way it is right now. That's the tax credit. It's the ITC, the investment tax credit. So if you spend hundred thousand dollars, you get a gift certificate pretty much for paying taxes for $26,000 just for there. And if a business owns it, you get all this stuff called like depreciation, which isn't as good as a tax credit, 
but it's a deduction. People can get almost you know half of their system paid for if they're creative enough with all these tax credits. And tax credits are bipartisan too, because if you just made it, you really did cut them a check, then they say, that's a handout. But if you go like, you lower their taxes, they're like, that's awesome. You know, Here we hear the 50% average annual growth in the last 10 years, that's really good. Here is just something that some of this new technology. So one of the things is like most of the utility scale solar that you're seeing these days is put on these single axis trackers. And so they go eat morning east, noon is flat, afternoon is west. And so it gives you more even electricity throughout the day instead of you're just pointing south and it just peaks out in the middle of the day. This particular picture is showing you a bifacial module that can capture sunlight from the backside. And this is getting more popular too. Sometimes bifacial has been exempted from the tariffs. A lot of people are paying approximately double for solar in the United States than if you were in some place like the Philippines or Malaysia, where you didn't have all these tariffs and you would be paying a lot less for your solar. And it's not exactly that number, but there's a lot of variables. If you can get exempted from tariffs, that's a great thing. But I think right now we don't have that exemption. There are just some more of these single axis trackers. Agrivoltaic, I was just in Indiana and that was, you're ruining farmland. You can actually improve your farmland. There's some chickens, you know, we've got a fence. Solar is a fence. And then also if you face it east and west, it makes more morning and afternoon electricity, which helps because you got all the other solar pointing south and you combine them all together and then it works better, you know, because it's, you want more even electricity throughout the day. So here's just showing you like some typical numbers. This is where like California has got the most, you know, over time. I know this is 2019, but it just kind of goes to show you that California has traditionally been half the solar in the United States. Disruptive technology, we just saw that was Amory Levins give a little talk there next door. He was talking about the automobile and how it's just like everybody's riding horses and all of a sudden, where'd the horses go, you know? And so that's kind of what's happening with solar. We just have like these exponential growth things. A lot of it has to do with the price and the double amount of PV that's installed. The price goes down 20% and that's called Swanson's law. Talk about that. This is why I'm just showing you it was 77, just the solar cells, $77 a watt. I know they're way less than 10 cents a watt now. We can see this exponential growth. Like if you took a dollar and doubled it every day for a month, 30 days, you got a billion dollars, 248, 16, 32, 64, and so forth. And that's how we want to figure out how to make our paychecks work, right? Here we've got exponential growth of solar. And we're showing this is on the a logarithmic scale. It's the earthquake scale, like the Richter scale. So we go 110. We don't go 12, 110, 100, not 123. And then it looks like a straight line. That's how disruptive technologies grow. There's either just like the, more about the growth. 2012, we almost doubled the amount of solar in the world in just one year. <laughs> All the solar since 1 million BC, solar since the year before. So there's like incredible growth rates. A lot of the things that I do is I prepare people for NAPSEP exams and it just really helps to get certified. I've noticed that people that take the associate exam usually double their income a year later, and then they get a certification like the PV installation professional, then they double their income more. So two doublings, that's four times your income and you're getting on one of those good curves right there. You can look at nabsep.org. I have like practice tests and all these different classes. I used to help write their exams, all these different certifications. Grid Alternatives, good place to volunteer with if you're in one of those 10 places where Grid Alternatives has offices. So some of these old timers that have been here in ACES, I had some people.
people that were at the ACES conference 50 years ago next door, which is kind of incredible. I've seen solar grow from nothing to something that's pretty amazing. This is just showing you how fast it grows. So if you go back to 2002, Home Power Magazine was showing Gorilla Solar. What Gorilla Solar is showing you is what I'm showing you here on this slide is like they had to illegally feed the grid. They had to hide their face and they had that old style meter that was spinning like a circle. Now we have digital meters and they, now they could catch you with a digital meter too. Eight years later, you can fly an airplane with solar. There's all these you know, solar rebates and incentives and initiatives and all that. And then what's the next step? Space-based solar power. They're working on it right now. It's not a new talk. It's been one of those things that futurists have been talking about. You pretty much, you get 24 hours of light and then you can microwave it through the clouds and the snow and the raindrops and you can get full on power and you can even send it to different locations. Let's say somebody's sleeping, you could send that microwave somewhere else. And they say that it's not as dangerous as you might think if you were in that beam, but I'm not going to sit there. I wrote an ACES article for Solar Today. The guy that I interviewed, he's like, no, if we wanted to kill people, we'd use lasers. You know, <laughs> Actually, he's got his office right over there next to SpaceX, but they're not related, but they happen to be close by in Southern California. I can't wait to get my space certification and be a space solar installer. And we have space solar installers up there on the space stations and things. There's a solar boat that's made it around the world. Here's a, like some things though, within the solar industry, just beware of solar hype. You know, you see like these, this thing, like small wind turbines are never going to be like cost-effective. They got to be huge tidal power. Hopefully they can figure out all the corrosion and forces without breaking things. They're just like lots of moving parts. One of the most beautiful things about solar is there's no moving parts. You know, you see, you got a, a piece of crystal, crystal magic. This is the American Solar Energy Society, very closely related to International Solar Energy Society, otherwise known as ISIS, the original ISIS. I actually have an ISIS card that I always bring like when I do classes in places like Pakistan and Beirut, where I've done some classes. But the president, I was talking to Dave Renee next door. He's the president of ISIS, a real nice guy. ASIS is like a chapter of ISIS. I think actually it might've been that ASIS started ISIS the other way around, but ISIS is actually, you know, the international and they have like an online museum. So if you want to see a lot of solar history, check that out. Einstein, he kind of didn't write exactly the photovoltaic effect, but one of his three papers that he wrote in 1905, the one that was about the photoelectric effect, which has to do with light knocking electrons loose, it's what he got the Nobel Prize for. He didn't get it right away. You know, you write the paper and then you just have to not die and wait long enough to get it. And so I think it was like 1921 or 22 is when he got the prize. And I was in Shanghai and I happened to be near this hotel where he was when he got the paper that when he won the Nobel Prize. So I went and stayed in that hotel in his room, in the Einstein room. So that was that was kind of a neat thing. And I've actually figured out how to clone him using CRISPR technology, if you know about that. But that's another story. We'll have to do another class on that. But it's kind of neat that, that he did that. There's the photoelectric effect. Another hero is Herman Scher. He brought along the modern solar industry. He passed away, but he was a German politician that came up with a feed-in tariff. And so half of the solar in the country used to be in the dark place that's not too great for solar of Germany. And for a long time, half the solar was in Germany because they made a rule that the utility had to reimburse people for 20 years for like a really good price. It was way more than people were paying for electricity, but it kickstarted the solar industry. So it's sort of like they sacrificed a little bit of something to start the industry and their electricity rate, German electricity rates are higher because they helped us out because they brought down the electricity rates. So that's kind of good mention here. They talk about the solar revolution in Germany. I usually go there once a year to the inner solar conference 
and I'm on the Intersolar Award Committee. So 1954 is when the first Bell Labs of people, you know, Alexander Graham Bell, telephone, helicopters, all that. And they came up with the first thing that looked like a solar module. The first solar that went into space, St. Patrick's Day in 58. It's the third thing ever sent into orbit. And it's the oldest thing in orbit now because Sputnik, you know, they didn't send it out far enough. It burned up. It's still out there, maybe for a couple hundred more years. There they are putting on the nose of a rocket, the Vanguard one. They have a backup copy at the Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. If you ever get a chance to check that out, you can see the space shuttle and the Nola Gay and all kinds of crazy things. Aviation Museum, the airport there. This is from NREL. Actually, there's an NREL online tour that they're doing right now. I've known people, though, that not during COVID had just like pretty much knocked on the door at NREL. This guy's from the Philippines. They let him in and they gave him a tour. I've been there a few times, too, because once every three years, we go there to have meetings to write what's going to be in the National Electrical Code. Of course, you know, it would have been in 2020 last year, but there's COVID. So I didn't go there last year, but I guess I was there in 2017 and 2014. In 2023, maybe I'll see you there. You come up with different ideas for the NEC and it's just kind of neat. Open to the public. Let's just talk about some different applications that we have. We got the grid tied and the off-grid and combine them together, space portable and hybrid and utility. So let's just dive into it because we are doing a 40-hour class in an hour and 15 minutes, pretty much. <laughs> Take away the introductions and all that. So interactive inverter, that's like most solar on the grid is just plain old interactive no batteries, a utility interactive. What you do is you got PV and it's connected to an inverter and it turns it into AC. So DC PV to AC. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The sun comes up, it turns on. If you don't have any energy storage here though, with a small exception, it pretty much can't do anything. You know, it just turns off when the grid goes down. Just to be aware of that. But, you know, if you're in a place where the grid doesn't go down that often, it's just not worth that extra expense to pay double for something that's going to only be working for one day or a couple hours a year here just that's from the national electrical code here's just inside of an inverter we've got pv circuits going in the dc inputs and that's this is a solar edge inverter so that's a dc to dc converters the electronics behind modules are connected in series so the modules aren't connected in series the electronics are so they could get the perfect voltage voltage for this inverter this is really popular for buildings in the united states and so the dc goes here through the dc disconnect into the inverter Inverter does magic and turns it into alternating current. And so that's kind of neat. This is that same kind of inverter right there. So we got DC coming from the roof, AC coming out. This is a micro inverter. We see this on a lot of houses too. This one is DC to AC right at the module level. It's a pretty easy way to install. You know, One complaint about having any electronics under the modules is when they break, you have to go up there and replace things. It can be dangerous. You know, you don't want to fall off a roof. Usually they're up on a roof and you've got DC because into these things, they're called MC connectors. And then you just have an AC cable that connects things together. And that's a parallel connection when it's connected together in AC. I don't call it a string because it's not in series, but some people just call it whatever they want. We can see that solar edge and in phase, the last two slides that I showed you, 80% of the residential market. And that's a lot of that has to do with these rapid shutdown requirements for safety for firefighters because firefighters don't want to get shocked when they're spraying water on things and they don't use fall protection. And we want them to put fires out on houses that have solar. So we're not saying that the solar causes the fire. We're just saying that they want to know how to safely turn something off so they don't get shocked. And so they will save your house. I was living in a house that about five years ago and there's a big fire 
and they burned down our neighbor's house who had solar on the roof and we had a ground mount. We were out in the country and it didn't burn down our house. And maybe it was because the firefighters just picked one. They said, let's pick the safe house. You know, that one doesn't have electricity on it. It could have been that. I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> they wouldn't let us be there. They, were, um, they would have figured there'd be way too many lawsuits if they let people there during the fire. So this is a large central inverter. So we see these, uh, I call them megawatt scale. It could be like somewhere around a megawatt or bigger. And you're going to have the whole array is working at the same voltage with these things. You don't have multiple MPPs with these things typically. So you're going to have DC in the field and you might have, you know, 20 or 30 modules in series. You go up to 1500 volts and that would be 1500 volts when it was turned off on a cold day because cold temperature increases voltage and off is the highest voltage. So you can't go over 1500 volts. There's probably no system that's over 1500 volts, at least that I know of. We have all these circuits going to that big inverter. And then that big inverter is gonna connect to a transformer. They're gonna bring it up to medium voltage. That's thousands of volts. And then it's a lot more efficient to transmit that alternating current there. Let's talk about a little bit about how some of these things are connected together a little bit differently. And there's AC coupling and DC coupling. AC coupling is when you have to convert to AC to convert your PV, which is DC, to battery, which is DC. You have to go to AC in the middle. Some people would argue against that, say, oh, it's a little bit more inefficient. But most utility scale systems are AC coupled. That's just the way it is. And you can put things in different locations. Everything's built AC. If one thing breaks, you know, 20 years from now, you could probably get a replacement that's a different brand that it will work with. If you're DC coupled, you know, you might have some obsolete equipment in 10 years if something breaks. So those are just some of the different arguments. I try not to take sides, but and there's benefits and drawbacks to each side. So that's AC coupling. Here's DC coupling. And what we have here is we have PV and this is like energy storage, ESS, energy storage system and PV connected together they share the same inverter and they're on the DC side of that same inverter. This is one of the ways that they do it for utility scale is they have a DC to DC converter with the battery. We're going to see a different way to do that too coming up. This is a hybrid. So this is also DC coupled and they call it a hybrid inverter. This isn't the national electrical code hybrid definition. What we have right here is we have DC. This is DC coupled because you're going PV to your battery without converting to AC first, but you use the same inverter. So it's kind of convenient. You got one box. So that's called a hybrid system there. This is DC coupling again. So we got PV charging batteries, and then there's an inverter here. And sometimes the inverter could be connected to the charge controller or directly to the batteries. With batteries, it's bad to overcharge them. It's bad to undercharge them. This is like the old timers, they were doing systems like this, and they still are sometimes. This is energy storage with a solar edge inverter. So this a lot of people are installing these things these days. And you've got a battery that's lithium ion battery right here. They only work with LG these days. It's DC coupled. So some people would call this a hybrid inverter too. And then we have a multi-mode inverter, which means that it can connect to the grid. And so the grid circuit has to shut off because you can't feed the grid when the grid is down. That's called anti-islanding. And islanding means you can become an island of power. And when the grid goes down, you can still power stuff. And so that is our backed up loads right there. And this is showing us here that we have a battery and it still doesn't work when the grid goes down. So there's a lot of people in the world that have battery inverters that they can't even work when the grid is down because they didn't want to pay the extra two or $5,000 or whatever it was to rewire things to make the system work when the grid was down. And they got that battery because 
they, maybe they were not allowed to export power or the difference in price between importing and exporting power at different times of the day was just not worth it to export to the grid. And so they put it in their inverter, like Hawaii. In Hawaii, they can't export because they have the greatest amount of solar on the grid is Hawaii per capita. And so Hawaii, Australia, and Germany, they have a lot of solar. So batteries are big as far as they call it self-consumption, where they put the energy into their battery where they're not home in the middle of the day. And then they'll use that same energy at nighttime. They'll use it themselves typically. And they call that self-consumption. And that's why somebody might not even have backup when they have batteries. You know, if the grid doesn't ever go down, what good is backup? Unless you're a prepper and you gotta be prepared. There's another diagram of a way to do AC coupling right here. So this is just AC coupling requires two inverters. It's like you have a PV inverter and a battery inverter, and then you can make a microgrid with the battery inverter, and then the PV inverter feeds it. This is the Tesla Powerwall, and the Tesla Powerwall is AC coupling. And this is an energy storage system that it's all combined together. And so energy storage systems that are listed to 9540, which is the UL listing for an energy, they're all lithium batteries right now, and they are all work with an inverter. So there's no DC energy storage system that you can legally put in your house, really, if you looked at the way the code was written very strictly according to some interpretations. We'll get cover that when we get into the NEC class. This has a gateway. This is called a microgrid interconnect device, one way to look at it. And this is what does the anti-islanding. So this gateway will disconnect from the grid, and then it'll signal that inverter to work in off-grid mode. So it's kind of cool how all this stuff works, you know. And Tesla's not the only one that does that, but everybody's heard of Tesla. So we got to talk about them. And they made a nice car, too. I have one of their cars. This is an AC module in phase, and it's got a microinverter built into the module. And so if they made it together, tested it, listed it together, you get an AC module like that. He's lifting it off a little bit, gets irritating after a while, but you need airflow. It gets too hot as it is, you know, and if it was just hot all day long, it would wear out faster. Direct coupled PV system. What we have here is PV and a load. So there's PV and a fan. It only works when the sun's out. PV and a water tank. PV in a developing country, you know, just pumping water. Cows like direct PV, you know, they love it. Here's another direct application, a water heater. You would have never done this 10 years ago because PV was too expensive, but we're heating water with PV. If I said to do that 15 years ago, people would be like, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. It's way too expensive to use PV to do that. PV has killed things like small wind and solar thermal. Like nobody with sailboats anymore is buying the little small wind turbines. You know, they just like get extra PV there. Small wind is neat though. I was just in Alaska and there's a lot of small wind out there with PV systems and it is neat. And also in Alaska too, you have some pretty dark winters. Another good reason for a wind turbine. So this is a little direct PV system I could put in my sailboat. This is my sailboat under the Golden Gate Bridge. Let's go sailing. Look me up. Here's a hybrid system. And so hybrid officially means, according to the National Electrical Code, something besides PV that does not include grid or batteries. And most people, when they say hybrid inverter, they mean PV and batteries. So a hybrid inverter doesn't meet the hybrid system definition. So maybe you could say hybrid system and hybrid inverter. This is a hybrid inverter. So what we have here is we've got PV and a battery on the same inverter. There's a different brand. It's a Solar, popular brand for that. I like this one where you get to do PV and exercise. And so you could ride a bike. And if we had more time, we'd do a moment of silence for the Solar Living Institute. Um, they didn't make it through COVID. And it was the greatest place to go up there. And they had all this neat solar stuff in Northern California. 
This is the biggest PV system in the world. When I took this picture, this is Sarnia, Ontario. There's 80 megawatts right here of inverters and 97 megawatts of PV. So that is a PV to inverter ratio that's greater than one. You always see that. They just rate things differently. Inverters are rated on the AC output and PV is rated on these optimal conditions that almost never exist. They call it standard test conditions. It's like really bright, cooler than you would expect. And just, we always have this PV to inverter ratio that's maybe like 1.25 to one would be a good average example of that. This is EV to grid. We're waiting for that. As soon as that happens, it's game over, right? The Ford F-150s, they've announced that Ford's going to, I think they're going to even do it for their Mustang. They're going to have EV to at least back up your house. That's awesome. Once one manufacturer does it, everybody else is going to have to do it. Maybe the reason they're not doing it is they're too busy trying to sell cars and they can still sell you a power wall and a car instead of just the car that has 10 times more energy than your power wall. You know, why not? I had a loaner car because if I did it to my own car, it would have avoided the warranty. And I hooked up a 12 volt inverter to the 12 volt battery in the Tesla because it just still has a lead acid battery in it that's connected with the DC to DC converter to the big high voltage battery. And I fed the grid 70 watts. Woo! EV to grid. I'm the first. I did it right? <laughs> so we're going to start seeing some of that. There's the Ford F-150. So with energy storage, people think of it, it's like, oh, you're time shifting. I think they say that the biggest reason to have energy storage on the grid, like they have these huge systems now, is frequency regulation. And so you can go back here and freeze the screen or whatever. You can see all these different reasons why we have energy storage. And a lot of it is just quick pulses of electricity. It's not like you're like saving a whole bunch of energy for this hour and then hours later putting it out, like time shifting energy. It could be just for quick pulses here, just leveling out, conditioning the grid. Great things to do for energy storage and energy storage prices are going down like solar like 10 years later. Community choice aggregation is something where I just mentioned this because I nominated my friend Paul Finn and he won the award here for ACES. I think he had trouble logging on and I was actually at a different job at that time. He wrote this law about 20 years ago where what his law said is instead of just taking it away from the utilities, the utilities still do the poles and the wires and then your municipality can purchase the electricity and make the rate plans. So CCAs, there's thousands of them in the United States. The electricity is greener, it's cheaper, it's pretty awesome. And I just think he's very underappreciated to thank ASUS for giving him that award. He really deserves it. He's been working hard at it for decades. And there's just some examples of that, and that we were like, we were campaigning against PG&E's monopoly, like, you know, long time ago. That's the biggest utility in the United States. You can get really efficient with PV. It's called gallium arsenide. And they can get up to 40% efficient. And Boeing has this company called Spectre Lab, but you need top secret clearance to sell it. And it's probably would cost you a million dollars for, I don't know, for like to cover your car with it or something. I mean, it's really expensive, but so is rocket fuel. It's the price that's most important for PV. This is called the duck curve right here. With the duck curve, what we're doing is when there's a lot of solar in the middle of the day, we need to shift the belly of the duck to where there's a lot of usage and not a lot of solar at the end of the day. As we get more and more solar on the grid, we take the belly of the duck and then we take that to lower the head of the duck. 
And that's what you're seeing with the, the self-consumption battery systems that we talked about. There it is, safety. We got to mention safety, but we don't have a ton of time. So this is 12 solar modules in series. It can make a big spark. And this guy's not doing things that are safe. He's got a metal watch on. He's got a metal chain on. He's got water behind him. And that a big DC arc, if somebody went behind him and pulled these wires, it could kill him because all that current would go through his heart. You know, electricians a lot of times keep their left hand because that's where their heart is in their pocket. Don't do that. If you overcharge a lead acid battery, it makes hydrogen gas. And that's the same thing that can power the space shuttle. So be careful of hydrogen gas. This is how to make hydrogen gas it's called electrolysis. And it put two electrodes in water and off of the negative comes hydrogen. It splits the water molecules. So you're splitting water. Another thing about safety right here is you want to be safe and not fall off the roof. Somebody fell off the roof. I think it makes it personal. This guy was working for Solar City and he walked backwards and that he's not with us anymore. Just be careful if you're on a roof. There's fires. Fires aren't always caused by solar, but we just want firefighters to be safe. And we talked a little bit about rapid shutdown. And so if somebody sees this yellow sticker, that means the system has rapid shutdown. And so it's safe for firefighters. So if you ever talk to firefighters, tell them to look for this yellow sticker or look to, for any sign that there's microinverters or DC to DC converters and they turn off the switch and then they know that they're not going to get shocked up there on the roof from the solar system when the sun's out. Or else when you're just putting out fires, only put out fires at night. <laughs> They're easier to see that way anyway. Here's a digital multimeter to measure voltage. If you do, get one that measures DC on the hoop right there. That's a Fluke, popular brand. And there's just a silly picture of not how to do the ladder right. I do a lot of classes with this guy. His name's Dom. He's in Washington, D.C. For He works for Good Alternatives, but there's a ladder that goes over the ridge. This was a picture I took at the Trina Solar Factory about 12 years ago. And you can see that his fault protection line goes all the way down, you know? So I went and I pulled on it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so fall protection doesn't really do too well if you go all the way down. And then this is like the wrong way to do things. And if we wanted to make fun of somebody, we could say that was them, but I can't think of who to make fun of right now. Skin cancer, be careful. It's a work injury that doesn't get covered by workers comp because it gets you 20 years later. So be especially careful of skin cancer. At least it got hands-free at least, you know, right there. There's a way to find ground faults by training animals right here. And here is just like the basics of electricity, basic algebra, volts times amps equals watts. And then watts stays on top and you could solve for amps and put volts under watts. You could solve for volts and put amps under watts. And these are the guys, Mr. Volt, Mr. Amp and Mr. Watt. They might look kind of funny, but they probably think the way we dress is even funnier. You have 60 cell modules are typically used for residential, 72s for like bigger jobs, commercial and industrial stuff. There's the dimensions, five and a half feet long is residential, six and a half feet is commercial. The reason they do that is with a smaller module, you can end up fitting more on the roof because they're smaller. You could fit them into the corners. Then if a big one, it might not fit. Did you know that it takes in one cycle of a 60 hertz sine wave, you can go across the United States? That's the speed of light. Speed of light is about the speed of electricity. This is kind of an important one. So like when, to know that power times time equals energy. So what you have on your electric bill is kilowatt hours. That's kilowatts times hours, not kilowatts per hour. And it's small K, capital W, small H. And it's not kilowatts. Your electric bill, unless you have demand charges, is not kilowatts, it's kilowatt hours. And you see so even salespeople selling stuff all the time and they're getting it wrong. So just make sure that when you talk about energy, you use the right terms with energy. And there are about 33 kilowatt hours 
and a gallon of gas. So you can even convert different types of energy. And I even figured out like I converted calories, kilowatt hours, and then back to a gallon of gas. And so there's 66 cheeseburgers per gallon of gas. Depending, it's like, you know, depending on where you get your cheeseburgers. Maybe we could squish them down and make some biodiesel too. Or we can digest them and make some very natural gas, <laughs> some fresh natural gas. <laughs> Here we got, we're just to test voltage. You got a voltmeter and this would be a sub panel. We got neutral. Line one, line two, and ground. Line one to line two is 240 volts. That's how we hook up our solar inverters. They're almost all 240 volts. If I hooked up line one to neutral, that's a plug in the wall. That's 120 volts. And I could do that to line one or line two to neutral. Both of those are 120 volts because neutral, the voltage is right between line one and line two. And then green and ground and neutral, they are the same voltage and they are connected together in only one place. We always have a single point of system grounding. And so there you go. Now you can be an electrician, you know what to do. That's all there is to it. Just resistance. What is resistance? Resistance to current. Copper and aluminum, we use those for conductors and they have very low resistance. But the insulation around it has very high resistance, but nothing's perfect. And so there's a way to test for ground faults or you know, like bad insulation would lead to a ground fault at least. It's kind of like a low grade ground fault. And they put a quick pulse of voltage on that wire and they see if it, how much of it leaks through to ground. And it should be millions of ohms, mega ohms. If it's not, then maybe there's something wrong. And our new modern inverters, they do insulation testing. They test the resistance of the insulation of the wire. And so the new modern inverters compared to the older inverters, we used to call grounded inverters, they can test ground faults that are a thousand times less than what it used to. It used to be like, you'd have to have at least an amp for the ground fault to blow the fuse. And now it's like, you could do like, you know, ton, way less milliamps. Here we have, we're going to talk now about the solar energy fundamentals there. That's how I used to tell time with my buddy, Fred. And I don't like to offend people. So if you're a flat earther, this class is also for you too. And so we've got that way. We've done the flat earth. Now we got to make everybody happy and do the spherical earth people. See, the flat earth, too, it's still round. It's, it's just flat. The Milky Way is flat. So why can the earth be flat, right? So the Milky Way, the planets, the moons, all that, they all go the same way. They all go counterclockwise in a plane. That's kind of interesting. And so the earth is tilted at 23 and a half degrees. Winter solstice, the sun is overhead 23 and a half degrees south latitude. And at summer solstice, it's 23 and a half times two. It's 47 degrees further to the north. So it's 23 degrees 23 and a half degrees north latitude. And that's why the days are nice and warm and longer at summer solstice. And after the first day of summer, the days start getting shorter. So you actually have equal sun pass at spring and summer, but summer's hotter just because it, you know, we had a few months for the earth to kind of get hot. Same thing goes with fall and winter. So fall and winter have the same sun pass, but winter just seems a little bit colder because the earth's been cooling off for a few months this has a lot to do with how we're going to aim our solar modules for the different months. And you can see that if you were on the North 23 and a half degree, you know, if you're in 40 degree North latitude or something like that, whatever we are here, you're going to have a lot less sun at winter solstice and summer solstice. You're going to get burnt, you know, sunburnt. This is just our neighbor Mars and it's further away, but it still has the day is only half an hour or so longer and the tilt is similar. So it's very similar to earth, but it's further away. So things are further away, take longer to orbit with gravity. You know, I also have a flat Mars society t-shirt too. So <laughs> I believe there's four time zones in the United States. Sometimes if people are on the East or the West coast, they think, oh, there's three, cause there's three ones besides them. 
but there we got four of us. We got Alaska and Hawaii. It used to be that they would say noon was solar noon. So when the sun was south, that was noon. And then every little town like Denver and Boulder have be like a two seconds different, you know, like the time would be a little bit different. People would get confused. And so due to like train schedules and things, they started making time zones. You know, there it is, the earth spinning. Most of the people in the world, just where the land is, live in this temperate zone between the Arctic Circle and the Tropic of Cancer. It just has to do like, if you look at the lower temperate zone, it's mostly oceans, not a lot of people there. Summer sun is straight overhead. Look, this morning at sunrise, I think there must be some fires around because I could look right at the sun and that's not too usual because there's some haze out there. I noticed it even when I pulled into town yesterday. The thickness of the atmosphere. If the sun is straight over your head, you've got one atmosphere at sea level. We're a mile high, so we even have less, so we gotta be more careful of sunburn up here. If the sun is on the horizon, there's maybe something like 10 times more atmosphere for that sun to go through. So it's just not gonna be as bright too. So another thing to draw back against December, draw back against sunrise and sunset, well, except it looks neater that way. But just know that there's this atmosphere makes a bigger difference. And that's also why you get a lot of sunburn there too. So be careful of that sunburn. This is kind of what the sun does around here. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west at equinox. That's about March or September 21st. And then at winter solstice, it's 30 degrees south, east or west. Summer solstice, 30 degrees north, east or west. So let's see, we got about 15 more minutes. So I'm just going to race through. These are some sun paths. You can go to Oregon sun path chart, check it out. If you lose your watch, you can just go and figure out how 15 minutes is four fingers. There you go. We don't need that. Any time pieces. These are the sunniest places in the world. So sun doesn't always mean it has to do with weather too. So like you can see the Sahara desert, a great place for solar, except for they have like political instability. But otherwise, once they figure that out, that's going to be a really good gold mine for solar. You can see Germany is like terrible, the worst place for solar here, but they have really good incentives for solar. So that was just an old NREL picture I got off their website. And it was like, I think they were carrying vaccines of the story I heard. We have bad air in places in China where solar doesn't work so well. We gave an award to Solar Chernobyl last year for the InterSolar Award. And this it was a megawatt at the, where that, the world's worst nuclear accident was, or this one or Fukushima, I'm not sure which one, but they put solar at Fukushima too. It's kind of nice that they've got a way to deal with that. There's just the North Pole. Putin has got a magnet and he's stealing it from us. So there we have like the outer core of, there's a solid inner core of iron, liquid outer core. It spins, creates a gyroscopic effect, magnetic field, protects us from cosmic rays that that North Pole moves a little bit. And so now it's headed to the East. Uh, geomagnetic reversal in the movies, it can happen overnight, but it usually takes about 7,000 years. And the last switch was 780,000 years ago. And you just go think that's a long time. Airplanes and boats, they line up with magnetic North. So they have to repaint the runway numbers every once in a while because runway 3-1 is plus or minus five degrees to 310 degrees latitude when it says in your compass. So I always thought that's interesting. They have to repaint them. The runways here is magnetic declination map that you can use for checking things. We have different types of solar radiation. There's a pyranometer measures global solar radiation, pyroheliometer measures direct radiation. And then we have albedo is reflected radiation. Diffuse radiation is radiation that is diffused like a blue sky is 10 or 20% of the light that you get. And that's diffuse radiation. So on the moon, you don't have an atmosphere, so you don't have a blue sky. This is the airport here right nearby in Denver. 
Somebody was recently just talking in the last talk was about electric airplanes, but there it is. See in the moon, you can hide in the shadows. Andy Weir wrote a book called The Martian that you might've heard of, Matt Damon movie, but there's Artemis, they, he wrote this movie and it was interesting how they were hiding in the shadows in that book. This is the South Pole, lots of reflection there. And so in the South Pole, they have a PV system there and the sun just goes in circles. So that's latitude tilt. Here's just an old Solyndra module. They use that for reflected radiation. This is an M&M's factory. That's a first solar cadmium telluride thin film module. 12 years ago, I took that picture or 13. This is shading. You got to clear the brush. It's not good to have shading. So I think they're just shading is a bad thing. It, this is what it does to one of those IV curves, really messes it up. Solmetric SunEye, the way to test your shading. People are starting to use LiDAR data. LiDAR, that's right there, that's Aurora Solar, but a lot of different companies use that LiDAR. So it's pretty neat how they can do LiDAR, which stands for light detection and ranging. So an airplane will fly over and send out lasers and figure out how high all the trees are. So that's a good way to do things. If you're doing utility scale system, you need to use this software called PVSYST for the bankers. They like to see PVSYST. Drones, if you like drones, you can get into the solar business and fly drones. If you do anything commercial with a drone though, you need a FAA license if you're making money. So I have inner row spacing calculators. That's one of my websites, pvstudent.com. Right here, what we have is we're just showing the dirt. So this is like a south-facing fixed PV array. This is a single axis tracker. So this single axis tracker help out a lot because it does, especially this afternoon right there. And a two axis tracker, they're kind of rare, but they're, I mean, they make the best, but they're just lots of repairs and it's expensive. You know, if you're gonna pay double, you might as well make double of this, end up making a lot more electricity. This is just showing somebody's website for their two axis tracker versus no tracker, but snow isn't as bad as that looks. For tilting a PV module, the best way to tilt it is latitude plus 15 for winter, latitude minus 15 for summer, and then latitude or 30 degrees for annual, or just go on there and do a calculation and see what's best. We don't set up PV like this anymore. This is the old timers when PV was really expensive. One degree of latitude is 69 miles or 60 nautical miles. And here's the find your local ACES chapter. I'm on the board of NorCal Solar. We're an ACES chapter. PV Watts is a great way to simulate uh, solar production. And PV Watts is made by InRail here. Um, right nearby in Golden, Colorado. Here, just a little bit about PV modules. There's different monocrystalline is more popular in poly now. Over the last couple of years, that changed. Cadmium telluride is a thin film, mostly first solar, gallium arsenides for space. I just thought this was an interesting comment is like hydrogen is a light odorless gas, which given enough time turns into people who make this statement. But the big bang, it was mostly all hydrogen. The universe still is mostly all hydrogen. Our bodies are mostly hydrogen. Like if you've counted all the molecules, mostly hydrogen, H2O is two hydrogens even. And then they, you get supernovas and then it starts making different things like carbon and that makes us. So it's kind of weird that we are just sentient beings that were just made from a cloud of hydrogen. So it's kind of funny. This is how you refine silicon and that's the expensive part of making it. They say it takes about a year for a PV system to pay off itself in energy. That's a monocrystalline ingot. There's polycrystalline. There's mono and poly. So mono's got the rounded corners and those were wafers. Then you do stuff to them. You make it a solar cell and be careful though. Forced labor is a bad thing. And they're doing forced labor in China. That's one of the reasons why we have tariffs. And so that's the Western part of China where there's Muslims. Maybe that's a polycrystalline solar factory. So just be careful. Be careful too what you buy. There's creative marketing where like Canadian solar is a Chinese company. 
and Amerisolar is a Chinese company. Maybe they could have Colorado Solar too. Here was just some of the top manufacturers of the solar industry. And I'm gonna skip through some slides. I like this bifacial facing east and west. So that's the red, that's making the bifacial right there. This is a diagram of bypass diodes. They're in the back of a solar module. They help mitigate shading problems. I have bypass diodes and really the solar, the current goes through every single cell. And what happens is if I shaded a cell, instead of going through these groups of cells, it goes through the bypass diode. Bypasses shaded cells. So it really helps a lot. A lot of times you get these people selling module level electronics and they're being like, oh yeah, if you shade one cell, it takes out the whole array. It's not that bad because you have these things called bypass diodes that help. This is a fluke meter that can be used to find heat. And so a hot cell is one that's not working because of something called thermodynamics and energy has to be accounted for. And so if you have a solar cell that is not working, then it will be hotter than one that's sending its energy to the grid. It's kind of neat with thermodynamics. Different types of solar modules there that we have. There's some floating solar. There's somebody Mickey Mousing around over in Florida. They try to copy them in China. Google, I live by there. They have solar there. This is something that's kind of new. Instead of rapid shutdown, there's a new rapid shutdown listing, and they're going to start be using things where they only have to shut down every three modules in series. This thing's called a mid-circuit interrupter, and you just put it on every third module to break it down there. Charge controllers prevent over and under charging of batteries. Here's just some a list of permit companies that can do permits for you and financing providers and distributors. And I'm going to get everybody's email address and send them a copy of this presentation. That was a big PV system in Ontario. I always thought it was funny how the wires were hanging down there. They said they did that for, there was leakage causing ground faults. It was too close to the rails. So they just let it hang in the air, like an overhead power line. <laughs> and then also if the fire catches it, it burns it and it opens up the circuit if there's a grass fire. And it saves you money on zip ties. I wrote an article on voltage drop and actually voltage rise. So if your inverter is 240 volts and your wire is too thin, to get that power to travel, it has to be higher voltage where it's coming from than where it's going to. So what you have is you've got higher voltage at the inverter than the grid. It's always gonna be that way. It's always higher where it's coming from than where it's going to. That's how they used to install solar without any flashing and no, we don't do that anymore. Wire management, tool crimpers. Can you go up to the ridge or three feet from the ridge or one and a half foot from the edge? It's up to whatever version of the building coat you're on so that they brought it from three feet down to one and a half feet in the 2018 International Residential Code and the 2021. This is my friend's off-grid house. This is solar that we had at my dad's house from a long time ago, or like in the 90s. That's a long time in the solar industry. And it's going strong, those old Arco solar modules. Here's S5 clamps. They can clamp onto a standing seam metal roof. It's kind of neat. These people, they didn't do it right. That space between those two rails should have been the space between this one and the next one. So they had to redo all those rails. That's terrible. And there's a way to get the vent to come out. That's solar on the Inca trail. I made that trip of business expense by putting that in the presentation. So thank you. This ballasted system before the hurricane and ballasted means they don't even tie it to the roof. It's wind tunnel tested and all that. And it's just amazing how most of it stayed in place. You know, like after the eye of a hurricane, and that was San Martin, that's where that hurricane was. This is Alcatraz Solar. This is really neat looking building integrated PV in Germany, but it costs a lot. And then how are they going to do maintenance on this? And how are they going to replace things in 20 years? 
That's kind of the problem, but it looks neat. That's cadmium telluride first solar. That's the M&M's factory there in the background. This is, I showed you, that was the largest one in the world a while back. Here we have just a more utility scale solar, Nellis Air Force Base. This has got ballasted solar because it's on a slope of a hill, but piles over here. And so pile driving is most solar in the country is going in with pile drivers. And so they just pretty much hammer a piece of steel into the ground. So that's what I, when I was just this whole week for four days, I was down with the Carpenters Union in Indiana, India, they call it IKO, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio. And that's what they're doing. These guys are doing utility scale solar. They're going, pounding these stakes into the ground and all that. And so here's one type of a pile driver that we see right there. And then here we've got um, ground screws, alternative to pile drivers or concrete. They're usually about six feet long and you drive them into the ground. And then we've got, that's me and the biggest factory in the world about 12 years ago. That was the SunTech factory with BIPV. There's my friend, Tony. He's installing BIPV at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. There's his solar roof tiles that he's been installing for a couple of decades. Dow got into the BIPV business, but they went out of business. BIPV is just hard to make work. It's really expensive. Tony only does it to like tech executives and millionaires and stuff. Those are the only people that are buying it from him. Here's just flashing. You got to put flashing. My friend, uh, Stuart, he invented the quick mail flashing and he's retired now. It's a really good thing that he invented. He's always been involved with ACES too. What we got is single ply roofing. It's sort of like linoleum. You just lay it out there and spread it out. And this is like your typical commercial roof. In some places, it's a cool roof because it reflects light. So it takes that solar energy and sends it out back to space, get rid of it, you know, instead of heating up the building. But a lot of people are setting their ballasted PV systems on top of it. You can penetrate a roof and put a pipe through there, or fasten to the roof with this. This is where I fly in and out of usually. It's the United Terminal in San Francisco. They've got ballasted PV up there. There's ballasted. See, they got concrete blocks. They call those paving stones and they hook you up there. You always want to hit the rafter. You know, you don't want to miss. We can make fun of the, if we had a company we didn't like, we'll say it's them. You know, that's that other solar organization that's not ASIS, right? <laughs> There's the unicorns do exist. You can see. And he's testing the solar. It's unicorn tested. And let's see here, we have just solar in the desert. It gets really dusty. And we could see what we have here is like a Roomba type of a thing. And it's really neat to go to the solar shows and just watch these robots at work because they have them going around. They actually have one robot that carries the small robots to other places. And then here we've got Saudi Arabia developed these solar cleaners. This is snow in Calgary, Alberta. So you can Google Alberta or just go to that website. And they just show you that it's snow is not as bad as you might think. I had a, a student that invented this because he had to replace all the microinverters on the SunPower AC modules. So that's a pain having to replace them all because there was like some kind of recall or something. Uh, if you want to take a NABSEP test, just get the tattoo. This is a Tesla coil. That was a student I had. Here is solar for oil. Chevron was beaming mirrors at this and then loosening up that stuck oil. So now they have solar powered oil. Isn't that cool? All oil, of course, is solar powered from millions of years ago, back when on our last lap around the Milky Way. And here is, we have BIPV. That was the biggest BIPV array in the world. And that was in China. It was like an hour or two on the bullet train from Shanghai. Different NABCEP tests got different prices. If you're interested in that, let me know. I just thought this was kind of illegal. They just had like this Everything was in Detroit where you can buy a house for a dollar. 
And they just had all these PV modules with like unlisted racks and no fence and kind of interesting. A lunar, the sun is 400,000 times brighter than the sun. So you get about 2.5 milliwatts per square meter at 20% efficient, and you get about 0.5 milliwatts per square meter. So maybe you could power your calculator. I've heard of people saying they turned on their inverter with the moonlight. That's probably kind of tough. This is the future. It's going to be all the smart electronics communicating. There's new things in the National Electrical Code. We'll go over when, if you're coming to the next class, that they were talk about that. That's a uh, different smart load centers. There's an east-west tracker that we have right here. So it goes east and west. It's very good for wind resistance. And then also in those places where there's too much solar facing south, you get these time of use rate schedules where it is south facing might not pay off as good. And you just use up your roof more efficiently. You use the whole thing up. This was a interactive system in Canada that's been going for a long time. So just because somebody has says warranties something for 25, 30 years, doesn't mean it's gonna stop working. So check all that stuff out. Here's my contact information. And that brings us to the end. I made it through all the slides. That's pretty good there. We made it through. I'll just leave it on that slide. It's got contact information there. So thanks for coming. Asus is great. I had fun. So thanks for listening. And I know that's right. There was a ton of information here. So make sure you listen to it a whole bunch of times, even if you're asleep. Congratulations. You have made it to the end of this podcast, which was a recording of a solar PV intensive conference in Boulder, Colorado, that took place on August 6th, 2021. If you want to find out more about ASIS, go to ASIS, that's A-S-E-S dot org. That's the American Solar Energy Society. Get involved. Join your local chapter. I'm on the board of directors for my ASIS chapter, NorCal Solar. Check them out at norcalsolar.org. And if you want to find out about all kinds of stuff and just fill your brain up with lots of good solar and storage stuff, go to solar, S-E-A-N, that's solarshawn.com. 